Last week, we weren't meeting in person, and so uh, hopefully you were able to watch Jason's conclusion to Second John. If you didn't get a chance to, it's still available. You can see it on Facebook or on YouTube or however you want to look at it. Um, you can even just get the audio-only version on our website. So uh, if you haven't watched that after we're done today, go, go watch or listen to that. That kind of wraps up Second John, but it also leads us right into where we're going into in Third John. Um, and just kind of looking forward for your guys' preparation, we're going to finish 3 John next Sunday, and then we're going to move into the book of Psalms. And we're going we're to look at a section of Psalms together that will probably tackle everything from elation and joy and looking at all the wonders of God's majestic uh, creation, but also cover some Psalms of lament. Uh, and, and, you know, different seasons of life, we can identify with different psalms. And God has given all of those as a resource for us to help us understand who he is, help us understand who we are, and then how we relate to one another, how we relate to not just each other, but to the Lord himself. And so that's where we're going after next week. So in, in February, we'll get into the book of Psalms. Um, you can turn to Third John if you're not already there. Jason uh, finished last week in Second John, and he mentioned a couple of pitfalls, or specifically some excuses that we make for ourselves, but sometimes we actually make for other people who aren't really displaying devotion to the church, to believers. So when John has emphasized in First John and in Second John, and he'll do it again in Third John, when he's emphasized the command that we've had from the beginning, that's what he's talking about. Love one another. In John's gospel, chapter 17, Jesus says that the world will know that you are a Christian by what? By your love. Love specifically for one another. Okay? And so John is just expanding on that. But Jason mentioned some of these excuses that we make, and he said something that I want to repeat today because it was, it was convicting for me to hear, and maybe for you too, but he said this. He said, the problem isn't that we don't have enough good examples, or enough time even. The problem is that we don't think rightly about Jesus Christ. It's true. We don't think, when we aren't loving one another well, that means we aren't understanding, we're not thinking rightly about Jesus Christ. I'll say it this way this morning, Jesus Command is to love one another, and when we fail to do so, we reveal our wrong or our bad theology. That's what we reveal when we're impatient and unkind and unwilling to extend grace. We reveal our bad theology. We don't know God as well as we ought to, and we reveal that when we're not loving. Now, it's true. There are endless, unlimited joys that we find in the body of Christ. Just in these past couple of weeks, hopefully you've um, experienced that to some degree. I know my family has with phone calls and text messages and people dropping food by and checking in on us. We've seen the body of Christ loving us. And I I pray and I, I hope and expect that that's happening within the members just naturally anyway. This is a joy of being a part of God's family. You guys are a joy to me. And I pray that me and my family are a joy 
to you. So living in gospel community is a wonderful thing. And Jason talked about one of the unexpected benefits of that last week. And it's discerning deceivers. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. I don't know that he said it specifically this way. But when you're living in gospel community, and we're loving one another the way that we ought to be, that guards us from wrong theology and wrong teaching. It guards us, in fact, from false teachers. And that's what we're going to look at today in 3 John together. So let's read. Uh, We're going to get through the first eight verses, but I want to read it all so that we can kind of set the tone. It's not long, just 15 verses. So read this with me and then we'll, we'll pray. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this, this letter. It's, it's personal. Lord, this is John just being real with his friend, warning him, encouraging him, challenging him. Lord, I I pray that you would shape our friendships to look like this. I pray that you would shape our missionology, missiology to look like this. So teach us today from your word, by your spirit. In Christ's name, I ask it. Amen. So 3 John, just a couple of interesting facts. 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible. And in the Greek, it's just over 200 words in, in the whole book. Um, it is a personal letter, as I just referenced in my prayer. It's a personal letter. So when you see books like um, Romans and Corinthians and Colossians, um, even Philippians, those are books that were written to a church, a group of people. But when you see uh, books like Third John, uh, Philemon, Titus, Timothy, those are books um, written s- to specific people. So that doesn't mean that we can't get theology. We don't. Our theology doesn't come out of those things. It just means that they were written in, with a more personal tone, 
And that's how third John is written. And so you see just how he addresses people is different than he's done before in a way. It's also interesting that a lot of people think this book was written even after the book of Revelation. So this could be the very last in of the canon that we have, the very last book in our Bible that was written. Wherever it falls in the timeline, though, of when the books of the New Testament were written, John was going to be up in age at this point. He was an older guy, and he had a lot of time to reflect on his years as he walked with Christ and then his years since Christ had gone back to heaven. Make no mistake, John was not a new Christian at this point. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't a pastor fresh out of seminary or anything like that. This was an experienced and a battle-worn pastor who loved the people that he was writing to. So we need to, we need to think about all of those things and receive it in the way that Gaius, who this book is written to, would have received it. And look at verse 1. He, he tells us, the beloved, he says, the elder, he's referring to himself, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And I want to hang out there for just a moment because Gaius is not a name that we typically hear in our in American culture. Um, but in John's day, this is a pretty popular name. Um, in fact, there were several other guys in Scripture that we'll talk about in just a moment who had this very same name. But uh, the, the title that he gives to himself, John does, he says elder. Jason approached that at the beginning of Second John, so you can go back and listen to that. But it had probably been 30 or so years that people have been using the term elder to describe a pastor like John. It's been a long time. So John, this wasn't an unusual word to use. John was an elder. And they received it as such. With that came some authority. And you saw that as we read through, talking about Diotrephes, he kind of rejected their authority. And so when John titles this letter, he's affirming he is an elder in the Lord in the church, and there's some authority with that as apostolic authority at the time. So Second John is interesting because it wasn't addressed to anyone in particular. Flip back there for just a moment. You won't see a proper name in there except for Jesus. There's, it's not addressed to anybody. When it talks to about the church, John uses a little bit of code, it seems, and he talks about the elect lady and her children. So there's no actual names in Second John, which is interesting. But then Third John is totally different. He starts calling guys out by name. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that should set the precedent for what we do as Christians today, necessarily. There are times when that may be necessary. But John does it here in Third John, and he titles it to a guy named Gaius, whom he loves. It's interesting how Second John is so general and Third John is so specific. It's, it's interesting, but it's not surprising, really, because I think this is how you and I learn stuff. So just think about math for a moment. You don't start teaching someone math by giving them an algebra equation or telling them about calculus or even going to long division, you start with number recognition, with counting, with simple addition, simple subtraction, stuff like that. When you're thinking about the English language, it's the same way. We don't start by diagramming sentences or explaining the difference between prepositions and pronouns. 
That's not where you start. You start with letter recognition and learning to read those letters when they're combined into words and into sentences. You start basic, broad, and then you start narrowing things down. We learn that way. So it's, it's interesting, not surprising, that John would start to teach us this way. We, we learn best by starting with the basics and then building on those into more specific areas. And this is exactly what John is doing with Second John and now Third John. Second John was broad. Third John narrows it down to be more specific. Second John gave us a broad understanding of how we're supposed to love one another. How are we supposed to interact with one another? How do we guard against false teaching? And then Third John gives specific examples of people who we should listen to and then specific examples of people we shouldn't listen to. He gives us good examples and then he also gives us bad examples. We don't know really a lot of things about Gaius here. I mentioned there are four other guys in Scripture I don't remember if I put those in the notes or not, but there's a Gaius in Corinth, in Macedonia, in Derby, and also in Ephesus. And those are all listed in Scripture. This is none of them. This is a different Gaius. It's only talked about here in 3 John, but John loved him. And he loved him really well. He says he loves him in truth. He calls him beloved four times in this letter. That's a pretty... No, Guys, that makes us a little uncomfortable nowadays to address one another as our beloved friend. But that was a, a very heartfelt, manly emotion that he was talking about his buddy with. He, he loved him. He was a good friend, not just because Gaius like had his back or anything, but because of the truth. And, and that's what he gets into in verses 3 through 6, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Um, Think about the truth. He loves him in the truth. Why? Because that's where their common ground was. Their common ground was the truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of his word, of what he left behind. It's the truth that both John and Gaius, they built their lives around it. And so that was their common ground. That's where mutual love for one another thrives. Now let's apply that into our relationships today. Where do your closest friends come from? Just think about that for a minute. Now we need, let me, before I move any further, let me just preface it with this. We need to have acquaintances outside of our Christian community of faith. Jesus, the gospel, propels us outward. So we have to be going out and making friends and, and being with people who don't know Jesus. But where do your closest friends come from? Do they come from the people that you spent years with in high school or college? Do they come from the people that you spend hours with at work every day? Let me ask you this. Does, does your common ground, does the common ground of attending a school together being forced to attend school together, is that really very deep? No, it can be, but usually it's not. Does spending most of your day working next to somebody automatically make them a really good friend? No. In fact, sometimes it can do the, it can do the opposite, can't it? 
My point is this. Our friendships should thrive on a shared relationship that's found in the truth with Jesus. That's where our deepest friendships should live and breathe and thrive out of. Now, you want to be buddies with somebody because they like the Cardinals and you like the Cardinals? That's great. That can be a common ground, but that's not going to tie you together when it gets tough. For John, he dearly loved his beloved friend, Gaius, in truth, because that's where friendship for the Christian is rooted. It's there, brothers and sisters. It's in the gospel. It's in the truth. Now look at verse 2. This is where it gets really surprising in my mind. He says, Beloved, I pray, beloved, talking to Gaius, his friend, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it, as it goes well with your soul. Now that last phrase is very interesting. John addresses his friend Gaius as beloved really four times in these, in these verses. But he prays for his friend in two ways in verse 2. He prays that all would go well with him. That doesn't mean that he would have stockpiles of gold and wealth, just that his life would go well in his pursuit of Jesus. The second thing he prays for is that he may be in good health in accordance with the health of his soul. Now notice how those things are tied together. That's what interests me. So let's pause and think about that for just a minute. The first thing that John prays for is not unusual, right? We pray for that for our friends, for our family all the time. We pray that God would bless them and that things would go well for them. And, and I think that Christians ought to be doing that. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be praying for success for our fellow Christians, for our fellow brothers and sisters. You see a brother or sister doing well, praise God for that. Don't, don't knock them down. Praise God that he is blessing a fellow believer. That's a good thing. We should encourage and pray for God to, to flourish them in every way that, they, that he can. We shouldn't hope for other believers to fail, even secretly. But notice the second thing that John prays for here. This is the interesting part. He prays that Gaius would be in good health as it goes with his soul. Now, this is not really how we pray for people, is it? A lot of times we just pray for their health and don't even think about what's going on spiritually in that person's life. That's not how John connects prayer here. He connects spiritual and physical together. Is it possible for your soul to be healthy while your body is sick? Yeah. I hope so. Because a lot of times we're sick physically. Scripture is, is full of people whose souls were healthy in the midst of suffering. Our family learned about uh, Paul and uh, Silas in prison. They were in chains with the threat of death and beatings, and they were singing worship songs. Their soul was healthy, but their bodies were in chains. That's possible. That's a reality. But John prays here that Gaius' physical health would go along with his spiritual health. What if we prayed for people that way? What if we ask God to bless someone physically to the same degree that they are healthy spiritually? What if I prayed for you that way? 
And what if God then answered that prayer? How physically healthy would you be if your physical health followed your spiritual health? Would you be fit and energetic? Would you be in bed with a prolonged sickness? Or would we have to get the crash cart for you today? The truth was alive and well in Gaius. His soul was healthy and John knew it because as we see in verse 3, it was obvious to everybody. Look at verse 3 with me. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So John mentions being visited by the brothers who came and testified to the truth that Gaius was proclaiming. But it wasn't only that Gaius was talking the talk. He was walking the walk. As indeed, John says, you are walking in the truth. That's what that means. Believers from Gaius' church came to John and testified to him to the kind of life that Gaius was living. You, you understand this. You've heard it this way, that Gaius' reputation preceded him. You guys heard that phrase before? And there's a lot to be said about our reputation as believers. You're going to do some things wrong. You're going to fail. You're going to blow it. The kingdom of heaven does not revolve around your reputation. It revolves around Jesus' reputation, which is and always will be spotless. But there is something to be said for our reputation. When talking about qualifications of church leaders, they're supposed to have a good reputation not only in the church, but in the community. Our reputation is important. And Gaius's preceded him. It was good. Not only was he speaking the truth, he was walking in it. It is a joyful and wonderful thing when a Christian's profession and their practice match. Do you see what I'm saying? When what they say they believe or say they want to do actually lines up with how they live their life, that is a joyful thing. That brings the father joy. Now think about your kids. If you've got a kid and they say, man, I really want to do well in math this year, so I'm going to study hard and I'm going to do my best to get an A. And then they do it. You see them giving up video games to, to work on their math homework. You see them giving up time with friends to spend time on their math homework. You see them walking in the truth that they said that they wanted to be in. As a parent, what does that do for you? It's the same thing that it does for John here. I mean, it makes you proud. Yes, they're getting it. They're doing the hard thing. And if we're honest, it kind of challenges us to then do the hard thing in our own lives, right? This, this delighted John, look at verse 4. He's, he responds to it this way. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, Gaius was not John's DNA son, blood son, but yet he called him his child. He said it brings him so much joy. There's nothing that brings him greater joy than to see his child watch, walking in the truth. Parents, you can identify with that, can't you? I think we, we apply this section well in that way. But is this what we get excited about for our friends? 
do we get excited to talk to them about how much weight they've lost, what project they're doing at home, what trip they were just on or will be taking soon? Is that what gets us the most excited in our friendships with people? Or is it that they're living out the truth? Nothing made John happier than to know that Gaius was walking in the truth. Is that what makes us happy in our friendships? Or do we express more joy and encouragement when our friend is losing weight? Or when they've got a nice tan from the trip they were just on? Now, those things aren't wrong. Please don't misunderstand me. It's good to have a goal and pursue it and to do those things and to relax on vacation and stuff. But what do we get most excited about with our friendships? It ought to be on the common ground of Jesus. It ought to be on seeing them walking in the truth. That's what we ought to celebrate. That's what we ought to encourage one another in. For John, knowing that Gaius' reputation and that his lifestyle was spiritually healthy was what brought him the most joy. Maybe the things that we get excited in our friendships need to, need to shift. Would my Christian friends be proud of my reputation? Maybe that's a question we need to ask. Could they say that the way that I am living brings them godly joy? John was excited. You can tell, I think, in this section that he's written. He was excited about the way that Gaius was living his life. He was excited about the man that Gaius was, has been and was becoming. He could pray that God would make him physically as healthy as he was spiritually because he knew he was spiritually healthy by his conduct, not just by his profession. But again, he wasn't necessarily well with his soul because his health was great or that his life was perfect. It was well with his soul because his relationship with God was right. That's what John was excited about. I think it's also important to understand that as a believer, <clears throat> you may have children, as John uses the term here, in the church and in your, in your life that aren't flesh and blood. You guys get that, what he's, he's saying here, I, I, I think. You know, the, the big brother, big sister program that, um, has a, an older person come alongside a younger person and just kind of connect them together. It's a good thing, but it never goes deep enough unless it goes to the heart. That's what we get to do in our friendships. That's what we get to do in our disciple, discipling relationships. So let me just press a little bit further on you this morning and ask, do you have a Gaius in your life? Is there someone that you are pouring into that you can take a step back and say, man, I'm proud of them, like they were my own kid? Do you have someone in your life like that? And another question might be, are you that person for somebody else? Are you somebody else's Gaius? See, when somebody's in the big brother, big sister kind of a program, I'm not picking on them specifically, hope you understand that, but that sort of format, it's, it's, it's good and it's helpful, but if somebody leaves the program and their life goes off the rails, it's not all that big of a deal for the person that they were working with. 
it doesn't really affect their life all that much. But you know what? In the body of Christ, it does affect your life. When somebody isn't walking the walk, it affects you. It ought to. We're connected. Paul used the body analogy over and over again. And when one part of the body isn't functioning right or it's hurting, everything is thrown off. You guys get this if you've ever stubbed your toe. You're just not right for a few minutes after. Apparently, Kelsey has a lot of experience with this. <laughs> or just a tiny little splinter. It affects every time you grab something. If it's in your hand, you know, it's just, it's a big deal. And that's how it is in, with the body of Christ too. It should affect us. It does affect us. If, we're, if the people that we're ministering to walk away from the truth, it's not just you know, the next 10 years of their life that's a problem. It's eternity. Forever hangs in the balance here. Not only that, but if you think about it, the future of the kingdom of God depends on it. The future of Christianity depends on the people who you are sharing the gospel with. It doesn't just stop with this group here. If the future of our faith is determined by how you share and live out the gospel, how long would it last? Think about that. If the future of Christianity depended on how well you live out the gospel, how long would it last? Would it stop with you? Or would it go on in somebody that you're discipling and pouring into? Now, thankfully, it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. There's someone named also the Holy Spirit who really does the work when you're discipling, when you're ministering. And he oftentimes uses and sends people like you and me. The body of Christ, he sends us to go and to preach and to live out the truth like Gaius was doing, like John had obviously taught him to do. Christian, you are not just a disciple. You are to be a disciple-making disciple. Does that make sense? It doesn't just end with you. If God has saved you by his grace, then you need to be showing someone else the same thing in their life and working with them. Can you think of a Gaius in your life? Someone who you have poured into who brings you joy because of their walk with the Lord. Now, not everyone that we preach to, not everyone that we disciple turns out to be another disciple-making disciple. But when a person does, you can identify with John and say, there's nothing, there's no joy that I have that's greater than to think of this person who's walking in the truth, who's living out what they say they believe. In Christ, I am proud of the men and women who have been raised up in this church and sent out from this body and who continue to disciple who continue to preach the gospel, both by their words and by their lifestyle. And I'm excited, as John would say, I'm full of joy to see and to walk alongside you here at Ramsey Creek as more disciples are being raised up 
and trained and sent out. That's, that's our purpose, brothers and sisters, is to go, is to learn to love God and then to go into all the world. In what he taught and in how he lived, Gaius was a godly example. He was the good example that John gives us here. Can the same be said for me? Can the same be said for you? Are you the kind of guy or girl who we can say they are a godly example in everything that they do? Now look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. We're going to kind of lump these together. We won't read them all again, but in these verses, John gives a specific example of how Gaius lived out his commitment to the Lord and to the church. So the brothers that John mentions in verse 5, they're probably traveling Christian missionaries, people that were sent out by John or other churches to Ephesus where they were or to the surrounding region. Uh, Even though they were strangers, John says to Gaius, he still supported them and he welcomed them into the church and probably even into his own home. These people also testified to Gaius' love and hospitality in front of the whole church. Look at verse 6. It says it there. So John encourages Gaius, just look, he says, keep doing what you're doing. Send them off in a manner worthy of God. That would most certainly include financial support. These men were traveling missionaries. They didn't have permanent jobs. They didn't have income. So when John says, send them out, we need to understand that that meant, to some degree, financially. But not just financially, because we all know that you can give, you can write a check and put it in the plate, and your involvement and care ends there. Now, we're, that's a good thing to do, but there, we need to marry the actions and the attitudes together. And so that's what John is saying. He's, so financially send them off, but also in prayer support send them off. And we see example of this in the book of Acts especially, but all through the Old Testament where the church, people raised up through the church and they were sent out, oftentimes in prayer and in tears uh, of joy, but they were sent out from the church. Church supported missions. And these men John says they went out for the sake of the name. That that means the name of Jesus. They went out because of Jesus. In his name and in his name alone, that's what Christians take to the nations. That's what believers go with, the name of Christ and his name alone. They didn't go out to strike it rich. They didn't go out to be inspirational speakers and make a bunch of money. They didn't go out to try and manipulate people's emotions to fill up the offering bucket. They went out for the glory of God and for the namesake of Jesus Christ. And that's it. I think that if a missionary is going out with any other purpose in mind, we should seriously reconsider supporting that person. It says that they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. That just means that It doesn't mean that they thought the Gentiles' money was no good. It just meant that they wanted to have a pure reputation with unbelievers. So they didn't go in asking for a love offering from non-Christians. 
They expected the church to go and support the mission work that they were doing. They asked the people who were believers in the city they were going to, to support these missionaries. This should inform us, even in 2021, how we ought to send, support, and practice evangelism today. These early missionaries, they didn't ask for money for the people who heard them preach because it would seem like that they were only after money then. There were people in the first century and people still today who do this very thing. They peddle the good news of the gospel as a means to an end, to fill their bank account and increase their reputation in the the world's eyes and they're false teachers and we should not support that kind of person. But Paul gives pretty clear instructions about how we should support people that we'll get to. I mean, this is, this is how and why churches have full-time pastor shepherds. This is why you all pay me to bring the word, to disciple you, to instruct and train you to do the work of ministry. Paul gives pretty clear examples of how we should be doing that for people in the church. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about traveling missionaries who are coming in and ministering to people in the community. These guys who were traveling, they didn't want to confuse people. And so they took no money from the Gentiles. They depended on the generosity of the church, of Christians. And so this leads me to my next point. And it's very simply this. The church should support missionaries. This is not a surprise, I hope, to any of you. We are right to think about the IMB in the video that we saw earlier. We are right to support people who go out in the name of Christ, who don't do it for earthly gain, and who want to see the kingdom of God come. We're right to support them. This is what John says. Look at verse (laughs) 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. Something that we, we ought to do, brothers and sisters, and we are doing. You can look at your announcement list, and at the bottom every week, there's a list of some of the missionaries that our church supports. Some of them we support every month. It's right to do that. It's why I love that we do that as a church, that our denomination does that well. As one of our missionaries, I think it was uh, Christy Harlea, when they were here several years ago, they, he preached and he said that, that Christian missionaries are the ones who are going down to save the person stuck in the well, and churches are the ones holding the rope. So, how can we hold the rope better? Well, next week in our Super Bowl, we get to hear a report of the Derringer family in Vanuatu and maybe get to learn how we can hold the rope better for them, how we can pray for them better, what's going on, how we can be supporting them in a better way. You may may never go to Romania, where the Harleas are, or Vanuatu, which is over by New Zealand and Australia. You may never get over there. You may never even get to Charleston, Missouri, where Shining Light is. But John says at the end of verse 8, by supporting them, we are their co-workers. We're partners. Think about that with missions. 
the missionaries that we support are not our employees. They're our partners. We're fellow workers for the truth. So even though we may never go to the places that they minister in by financially and prayerfully supporting them, you are their co-workers in the truth. Partners together, fellow laborers, John says. The early church was built on this kind of idea. It was built on missions. If the, the disciples did not go, you and I would not be here. Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel and they did it. Brothers and sisters, it's no different today. Nothing has changed in that regard. If you do not go out and preach the gospel, the world will not know the truth about God. And that's why Jesus says, go. Flip over to Romans chapter 10. This will wrap us up this morning. In this idea of going... Look at Romans chapter 10. This would be probably a familiar verse to most of you. Verse 12 through 15. This is Paul and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the assurance that we have in evangelism and in ministry. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. Everybody. There's no distinction. He's just gotten done saying that. There's no distinction Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Do you see that his reasoning here? He works backwards. He works the problem backwards a little bit. And he gets to the, the point where he's saying, how will people hear unless the church goes? Unless they send? So, ask yourself this question today. There's two I want us to think about as we finish. First question, are you being called to be a sender? prayerfully and financially supporting and sending people into missions, extending the reach of the church through missions. Or maybe you're being called to be the one who's sent. I like what Danny Aiken says about this. He says, all are essential whether it's the sent or the sender, all are essential as we cooperate together in the work of God. We say, God, multiply the sent. But we also say, God, multiply the senders. Do you rejoice greatly when your friends testify to the truth? Is that the kind of joy that we get in our friendships? Do you find great joy in discipling others and seeing them walking in the truth? Maybe the most telling, challenging question I can leave us with this morning is this. And I've asked this of you already this morning. Are you someone else's Gaius? Is your life a testimony to the truth that you're walking in? Are you bringing another believer great joy by your reputation? Does it match? Does your profession and your practice match? Are you walking in the truth? If you are, 
Praise God. Keep doing what you're doing. Be encouraged. You're not perfect. You won't do all of those things perfectly. But if it is your consistent and regular goal to honor God and how you live, keep doing what you're doing, brother or sister. I praise God for you. And if that is you and you're not already doing it, grab a brother or sister and bring them along with you. They might not even ask you to do it. I don't care. Grab them and bring them along. Disciple them. Show them what it looks like to follow Jesus every day. Are you being called as a sender to send someone out or are you being called to be the one who is sent? In reality, every believer is sent, aren't we? Every Christian is a missionary to some degree. Now, maybe it's to the manufacturing line at True that you're a missionary, or maybe it's to the schoolroom at Clopton, or maybe it's in your home that you're the missionary. We're all sent because we're all told to go by our Savior, but not every believer is sent to the same place. Some are sent overseas. Some are sent to adopt. Some are sent to their grandkids. We're all sent somewhere. How are you and your family supporting missionaries? Do you pray for them often? Do you financially give to their efforts? How are you holding the rope? This week, we looked at the good example that John gave us and his good friend Gaius. And there's a lot to take from this. There's a lot of challenge here for our personal life. Next week, John switches it up. And we look at a guy whose example was not good. Example was bad. And we can learn just as much from the bad example of what not to do as we can from the good example. So think about that this week. I'd encourage you to read through the end of 3 John if you've not already. And we'll look at the guy named Diotrephes and Demetrius, both of them, next week. One is another good one and one is not so good. And John's going to teach us... Um, Let's reflect on these things as we pray and then as we sing. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this, this letter. We get a glimpse into a personal note and it helps us, it challenges us. Are we excited about the same things? Uh, Do we get pumped up in our friendships about somebody walking in the truth the most of all? Lord, are you sending us? Are you preparing us to go somewhere? Maybe it is overseas. There are some in this church that have that passion and desire. Lord, I pray that you'd be preparing them and giving them the means to go. Maybe we as a church body are the senders. Help us to do that better. Lord, help us to hold the rope in a way that maybe we haven't before. Because it's more than just finances. That's a great place to start, Lord, but it's, It's also about understanding what these families are struggling with and how to pray for them better. So I'm excited about the opportunity next week to hear how to do that for the Derringers, Lord. And I pray as we think about this today and coming up, Lord, that you would help us to get excited about those kinds of friendships, that we get to push people into a further walk with you. Lord, help us and our reputation to be the ones that our friends can point to and be proud of. 
I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.